0: We are in Isaiah 27, and in verse 20 in Isaiah 26, Come, my people, enter into your chambers, shut the door behind you, hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it, and will no more cover it slain. One of the things that I said last time is rapture folks think that this is an allusion to the rapture, that is, The tribulation happens that God's people are going to be put away in a chamber somewhere and won't have to go through it. I personally see it as a reference back to the Exodus, where God took his people and moved them to Goshen while he dealt with Egypt. And as I am very fond of saying, if I'm wrong, rapture guys can explain it to me on the way up. And if they're wrong, they can come out to my tent in the wilderness and I'll explain it to them. What I think is the job of the 144,000 is to go out and gather God's people and take them to a place equivalent to Goshen. Where that's going to be, I don't know. 144,000 is a thousand pairs for each of the 72 biblical nations that separated. So there'll be a thousand pairs per nation. Each thousand pairs will gather the people of the nation they are sent to and where they put them i don't know but it's their job to get them out of the way figuring out how that works is god's problem not our problem in other words god arranged to get the animals into the ark god arranged to get the hebrews into their dwelling places with the blood on the door god arranged all that how he's going to do that with us is not my problem so we're in chapter 27 in that day the lord with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. That takes a little unpacking. Starting with Egypt, what you have here is what's called a worm or Ouroboros. And the reason I say that is because I was introduced to it as a high school kid when I was reading Norse mythology. And in Norse mythology, there is a serpent called the Midgard Serpent. And the Midgard Serpent encircles the earth in the sea. So it's the bottom of the sea all the way around the earth, and it's got its mouth on its tail. And the Norse legend says, when the Midgard Serpent turns loose of its own tail, the seas will be roiled with its thrashing, and that will be the final battle of the gods, Ragnarok. I thought that was kind of cool. But then it turns out that a serpent biting its own tail goes clear back to Egypt. It's called a worm Ouroboros. Same myth, legend, going from ancient Egypt all the way to Norse mythology, and I suspect lots of other places. So when God is talking here about Leviathan and the fact that he has a serpent twisting in the sea, I'm perfectly happy that God is going to do that. But the fact that lots and lots of people have this legend or this myth of a serpent encircling the earth in the sea, I find just absolutely fascinating. In the Middle East, there was another set of legends about the same thing. Sort of two points about that then. One is the image here that is being spoken of is something that they would have understood. Just like when I read this in Isaiah, my place to go is Norse mythology. Oh, that's the Midgard servant. We're talking about the end of the age, the final battle among the gods. Well, we see the same kind of thing in Revelation where you have Yeshua coming back and putting everything under his feet. I want to be really clear. I am not saying this as if I believe scripture is a myth. I am saying that other peoples have these same stories so they are universal to humanity like the zodiac like the flood so in my estimation my belief the bible is the reference version and all of these other peoples who have their myths are degraded version of some truth that is expressed here in the bible i don't mean to give anybody the impression whatsoever that i'm saying that Isaiah is dealing in mythology. What I'm saying is Isaiah is giving you the straight version and all of the various mythologies that touch on the same subject are legendary, corrupt, vestigial memories of things that are actually true. But anyway, in that day, in this case, cross-referencing to all of the other legends, is that's where, in this case, God is dealing with the Midgard serpent. If you, and I'm using that term because it's familiar to me. And we have in the Norse legend that at that time, the gods will have their final battle and it'll be the end of the age. So everybody sees that this is a marker for the end of the age. We have three in that days here that we're going to go through. And I see that as the end of the age, if you will. Maybe before the thousand-year reign, maybe after the thousand-year reign. Not sure, but it's a major marker for the planet. And then verse 2. In that day, said again, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it, I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest one punish it. I keep it night and day. Now back in Isaiah 5... We also had a vineyard, and the vineyard is Israel in both cases, and I'm in Isaiah five three. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more is there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So... He's using the metaphor of a vineyard back in Isaiah 5 to talk about the corruption of Judah in this case. So now, same metaphor, he's using a vineyard to talk about Israel. It is Israel regathered, Israel in the place where it's going to be, Israel blessed and protected by God because their punishment is over. Verse 2 again. In that day a pleasant vineyard, sing of it, I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish me. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In verse 4, would that I had thorns and briars to battle. What he's saying there is, I, God, am the protector of Israel, and if there were anybody left to fight, I would do so. But there isn't anybody left to fight. This is, again, an indication of the new age, when there's nobody fighting against Israel because they have all been defeated. And he says, furthermore, I would march against them, I would burn them up altogether, or let them lay hold of my protection. In other words, the potential enemies of Israel at this point are free and welcome to lay hold of God's protection, which is what I'm going to suggest is the messianic age. In Hebrews and in Ephesians and in Corinthians and several places, one of the things that is made possible by the death, resurrection, and ascension of Yeshua is now Gentiles are free to come in. They can be fellow heirs with Israel. They can be brothers of Messiah. So what I suggest Isaiah is saying in 27.5, when he says, or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. That's a reference to the Messianic age when Gentiles are now free to make peace with God because of what Yeshua did. But from God's perspective, he would be quite happy to go out and do battle with the briars, but there aren't any anymore. He can't find any to fight. Verse 6. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Obviously, Israel unified and blessing and filling the whole world with fruit, I would suggest, is a metaphor for them doing what they were originally designed to do, be a nation of priests. That was their original mission. And so what's happening here but filling the whole world with fruit is they are out then bringing people in to the kingdom of God. Verse 7, as he struck those who struck them, or have they been slain as slayers were slain? They, in this case, is Israel. So When he says, has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Remember, we've talked, especially in talking in the context of the Assyrian captivity, that God will deal with the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all those folks who have been his instrument of chastisement for Israel. The fact that they chastise Israel is not what they are guilty of, because he raised up the Babylonian empire and he says, take them out. And they did. The problem is they engaged in what I would call unnecessary roughness. So God then goes back and deals with those nations who were over-enthusiastic in doing what God had called them to do. So when he says here, has he struck them, as he struck those who struck them, What we have just been reading about all the stuff he is going to do to Assyria, to Babylon, to Edom, to Moab, all of the people who have been around Israel during the time when they're going in exile. And he ticks off how he's going to nail each one of those folks. And what he's saying here is he has not struck Israel in the same way that he has struck those who were his instruments or who were people around there during the time of the exile. Has he struck them, as he struck those who struck them, Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? So he has not slain Israel as he has slayed those who slayed Israel. Measure by measure, by exile you contend with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. The idea here, measure by measure, is Israel's punishment was an exact measured degree as was the degree of their violation of the covenant because remember back in Deuteronomy and Leviticus he says all right guys we're doing blessings and cursings here what we all want is to do blessings but if you don't you're still my people and you're still my witness so you're going to witness to me as you suffer in exile because the terms of the covenant are obey me follow me, be faithful to me, and we will get blessing. But if you don't, this is what's going to happen. And part of what's going to happen is exile. So exile is part of the covenant. What he's saying here is measure for measure. As you violated my covenant, so I have invoked the terms of the covenant, and I have sent you into exile, and I have punished you in direct measure as you went astray. It's built into the covenant that there will always be a remnant to be witnesses of God's covenant with Israel. The poster child for that, I think everybody's heard, is Mark Twain's comment that in order to believe in God, all you have to do is look at the Jews because they are living the covenant. And you can see the covenant working out in them. And the fact that they have remained a coherent people for 3,500 years in the face of all attempts to destroy them, is the ultimate witness to who God is. And that's what God is saying in Deuteronomy. You guys are going to continue to exist as a nation. I'm going to continue to mark you because you're going to be my witness. And we all really would prefer you to do it in blessing because you're obedient. But either way, you're going to be my witness. So now down to verse 9. Therefore, by this... The guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. So what he's saying is, I sent you into exile and punishment in accordance with the covenant. That is done. It's enough. You have been sufficiently punished for your guilt. So therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones, crushed to pieces, no Asherim or incense altar will remain standing. So what he's talking about here is the reason you got sent into exile was because of adultery. And you were committing adultery with these foreign gods. What's going to happen is the altars will be crushed like chalk stones. In other words, these altars that you've built all over the place to foreign gods are going to be crushed. And the ashrams ashrams are totem poles, by the way, are all going to be cut down. All of the evidence of your adultery is going to be erased. Verse 10, For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken, like the wilderness. There a calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make fire of them for this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. Now, I'm not sure who that is because we've just been talking about the restoration of Israel. And now we're talking about destruction of a fortified city. Don't know whether we're talking about Jerusalem It isn't really clear from the grammar here. I suspect it's probably Jerusalem, but I don't know that. Verse 12. Now we're back to in that day. This is the third in that day in the chapter. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain. You will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain of Jerusalem. This is a reference to the territory as described in Ezekiel. The end times, Israel's territory is stratified horizontally, starting from Egypt and going all the way up to the Euphrates. In other words, Israel has got the full extent of the land that God originally promised them. And so when it says here, the Lord will thresh out the grain. Threshing is a metaphor for judgment, if you will. And I don't know who the judgment is on here. It may be on the people who are living there right now. Okay, the Syrians and the Palestinians and those kinds of folks. That may be who is threshed. Or it may be Israel will get purified in that process, but the point is they are going to get the land from where the Euphrates is up at Carchemish all the way down to the brook of Egypt. And those who were lost will be returned. Let's talk about exile for a minute. Exile is therapeutic. In addition to being chastening, the place that Israel gets sent into exile is determined by the deeds that caused them to go into exile. So, starting with the Egyptian exile, the thing that caused them to go into the Egyptian exile is the treatment of Hagar and Ishmael. Hagar, of course, means the stranger. So they get sent to Egypt where they are strangers in a strange land and they get treated like strangers and eventually enslaved and when they come out God says over and over and over in the Torah, remember what it was like to be a stranger. And don't ever treat strangers in your land that way. The next exile we get is the Assyrian exile. That's caused by idolatry. So they go off into idolatry and they disappear. And I'll talk about that in a minute. I'm going to come back with the marker there. Judah follows into exile about 120 years later the difference between Israel and Judah is Israel set up the golden calves at Dan and Lachish and they went full blown into idolatry they changed the feast times they set up golden calves on top of the bottom of the country so their transgression was far more egregious and they were scattered to this day we don't know for sure where they are Judah also went into exile for idolatry and where they went is idol central babylon you guys want to do idols we'll do idols we'll send you to idol central which is babylon but judah remains a coherent people they continue to exist to this day after the babylonian exile they come back to the land some of them do and they remain an identifiable people coming back in the land and my opinion is The reason they came back was so that the Messiah could be born. The reason Judah was kept together, in addition to being a witness, was because Judah needed to be kept together because from Judah will come the Messiah. So if Judah had been scattered in the same way that Israel was scattered, then the birth of the Messiah would not have been in the land in a defined people at a defined time. If the Messiah had been born to somebody in Issachar who happened to be looking at the back end of a horse somewhere in Mongolia and lost his identity, nobody would know that the Messiah had been born. So Judah has to remain as a coherent unit, has to remain as a people. But the reason they got sent into exile still exists. So they come back into the land for a short period of time, several hundred years. The Messiah is born and, bang, immediately back out into exile. In the second exile of Judah, the rabbis say that the reason for that exile is because we had too many scorpions in one bottle. We couldn't get along. Baseless hatred. Oh, okay, guys. You want to do baseless hatred? Let's do baseless hate for, for 2,000 years. The culmination of which is the Holocaust. Baseless hatred on steroids pogroms all sorts of things happen to the jews which are nothing but baseless hatred but they still remain together because god needs them for a witness and now they're coming back again and i'm suggesting this is i hope the beginning of the regathering and this threshing that is going to happen is god is going to winnow the nations and pull the grain which is his people many of whom don't even know who they are, out of there and draw them back to Israel. Chapter 28. Now we're going to talk about Ephraim here. Ah, the proud crowd of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of his glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Ephraim has got the blessing of Abraham. Judah does not. So if you go back to the blessing that Jacob gave to his 12 sons on his deathbed in Egypt. What becomes really obvious is Joseph has got the blessing of Abraham. And the blessing of Abraham is land and descendants. Judah has got, I don't know what you would call it, a blessing or a destiny or a burden or whatever of leadership. So Ephraim the proud drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Riches, beauty, all those kinds of things are the blessing of Abraham. And what Ephraim has done is he has squandered those. Verse 2, Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He cast down the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like the first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. Talking about the Assyrian invasion. So Ephraim has got the blessing, and Ephraim has squandered it. So, what God is going to do is erase them, but they're not going to be gone forever they will eventually return, but this is the reason for their exile. Verse 5. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Not sure what in that day is. It's probably in end times. In other words, the description of why Ephraim got sent out, we have seen over and over again. This is simply another version of it. So we're back to in that day, which I am going to suggest is the Assyrian invasion. Because verse 7, those who reel with wine and stagger with strong drink, the priest and the prophet reel with strong drink, they are swallowed by wine, they stagger with strong drink, they reel in vision, they stumble in giving judgment, for all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. And what I am going to suggest is one of the reasons that Ephraim goes into exile is because the priests have not done their job. Because remember, it's the job of the priests to differentiate between holy and common and between clean and unclean. That's their job. So this metaphor of drunkenness on the part of the priests paired with the metaphor of drunkenness on Ephraim leads me to speculate that the problem with Ephraim is the priests didn't keep him in line. So describing Ephraim as a bunch of sloppy drunks and the priests as a bunch of sloppy drunks is a metaphor for why they've gone into exile. And they go into exile, of course, for idolatry. Verse 9, to whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from milk, those taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. The commentary I read about this is that in the Hebrew, this sounds like how you would teach a toddler. And the underlying Hebrew words are nursery rhyme words you know, sing-song, nursery rhyme kind of text. The sense of the commentary that I read said that the priests are poo-pooing Isaiah. Isaiah is giving these prophecies, and the priests are saying, you're treating us like little children. We are full-grown men, and we are experts in the Torah, and all that kind of stuff, and you're not treating us that way. You're treating us like children. That's what the commentary that I read said. Now, Coming down to verse 11. For by a people of strange lips with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people, to whom he has said, this is rest. Give rest to the worry. This is repose. Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord was to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, little here, a little there that they may go and fall backwards and be broken and snared and taken. So what Isaiah is saying here is you regarded my words as a nursery rhyme. This is really too simple for us. We're far more sophisticated than to listen to this stuff that you're talking about, Isaiah. So what Isaiah says, okay, you won't listen to God by the mouth of a prophet, Isaiah, Then what's going to happen is God is going to teach you at the hand of an invader. So let's look at it again. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk or those taken from the breast? And then down verse 11. By people of strange lips with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people. Which is to say, you guys will not listen to the prophet. Therefore, you're going to learn how to speak Assyrian. If you will not hear it from one of my prophets, you're going to hear it. And I will use a foreign people with a strange tongue, and they will be the ones that teach these precepts. Because you would not listen to the precepts from my prophet. I have heard pastors use Isaiah 11 as a metaphor for speaking in tongues. That isn't what it's saying at all. What it's saying is, hey, You wouldn't listen to the prophet. You wouldn't turn so that the prophecy wouldn't come to pass. Since you will not turn and you will not listen, we'll have a foreign people teach you in exile. 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. We were doing Ephraim before, right? Ephraim is the northern kingdom. Now we have turned and we are talking about Jerusalem. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. What this may mean, and I got this out of a commentary and I don't otherwise know, is in pagan religions there are gods of the dead and so what it's saying here is we have made covenants with death which is to say we are worshiping the pagan god of death which every nation that is not judeo-christian has what is being said here is we are worshiping the local pagan god and he will protect us and what god is saying is no that isn't what's going to happen But that's the sense of it. Let's pick it up at 15 and a half. It will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass through, by day and by night it will be sheer terror to understand the message." For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Parazim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused. To do this deed, strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien his work. Now, therefore, do not scoff, let your bonds be strong, for I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. All right, let's back up and unpack some of that. Obviously, behold, I've laid a stone foundation that's talking about the Messiah. I will make justice the line, righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. Well, up here in verse 15, he says, we have made lies our refuge. So this refuge that you have set up for yourself, which is false gods, will be swept away. And of course, your covenant of death will be annulled, and your agreement will not stand. And as often as it passes through, it will take you much like the death angel in Passover and then it will be sheer terror to understand the message the message here is you have violated the covenant you have made an alliance with strange gods you have made lies your refuge and the message I am sending you you are going to finally comprehend in terror because you're going to recognize that this house of cards that you have set up for your protection is no protection at all So when the truth sweeps over you, it will be terror to you. Verse 22, now therefore do not scoff. Remember it started off, you scoffers in Jerusalem. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. The idea of a biblical prophecy is that God's people will heed the prophecy will mend their ways, and the prophecy will not come to pass. That's the desired result. So if the prophecy comes to pass, it means they did not listen. So when he says here, now therefore do not scoff. And if you quit scoffing and you do what I tell you to do, then all of this stuff that we just read will not happen. But if you continue to scoff, it will. 23. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? And the answer to that, of course, rhetorically is no. You only plow in the spring when you need to plant. You don't plow year round. When he has leveled his service, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat in rows, and barley in its proper place at Emoreza's border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. So the idea here is Israel and Judah have not done what God has taught them, and they are doing things which is the equivalent of stupidly continuing to plow the ground. If you plow the ground year-round, you never get a crop. Metaphorically, what they're doing is they're plowing under the seeds before they have a chance to germinate. Whereas someone who is properly instructed plows in the spring, plants stuff in the proper place, and will get a good crop. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel run over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. So again, he's using an agricultural metaphor. You don't crush grain, you grind it. So when you drive your cartwheel over the grain, what you're doing is you are essentially threshing it, which is separating the wheat from the chaff, and you don't thresh forever. And so what God is saying here, obviously, is that if you follow the wisdom of God, your life will be like a well-run farm. And I'm giving you these metaphors of dumb things you would do as a farmer and everybody can understand that they're dumb. And I'm telling you that the things that you're doing are dumb. Making a covenant with Hades or Sheol, making a covenant with death, that's dumb. You wouldn't do these things as a farmer. Why are you doing these as a nation?